Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber, how's it going? Going great. Uh, listeners, we don't have Alex Lawson for our news stories that we're going to talk about in just a minute, but he does appear on today's show, and he has a pretty good reason for only doing the main segment this week. He is talking about the Trump indictment. There's so much to get into there. He actually has a great guest for that interview. He's joined by Richard Berfault, a constitutional law professor at Columbia Law School. So they really get into breaking down sort of the intricacies of the legal theories behind the charges. So I think that's going to be really interesting for our our listeners. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that segment. As we record, Trump has just entered his not guilty plea. So this is this is very timely for us for once. A rare occasion (laughs) when our recording schedule actually aligns with what's going on in the news. But before we play that part of the show, we do have some other stuff to talk about. Haley, let's trade some news stories. What do you have for me today? Let's do it. Let's head on over to the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh Circuit recently overturned its own ruling from this spring, shutting down a lawsuit from a Christian teacher claimed he was forced to resign because he wouldn't use a transgender student's preferred pronouns. In doing so, the Seventh Circuit pointed to the Supreme Court's decision raising the bar for employers looking to argue that granting a religious accommodation is an undue hardship. It's perhaps a little surprising that they pointed to this Supreme Court decision because, as you may recall, that decision had to do with a postal worker who wanted Sundays off work. And this case before the Seventh Circuit is about pronouns, which, you know, not exactly how I predicted this ruling would be used, but but I suppose it makes sense. Sure. I think this is going to be an interesting one to talk about for just that reason, Haley. I think when people hear religious accommodation, you do just often think about someone who wants the day off to observe their religion. That's the most common accommodation that's requested or days off for special holidays, things like that. So I want to get there, but maybe what we need to understand first is exactly what this teacher was suing over in the first place. This suit was filed back in 2019 by a Brownsburg High School orchestra teacher. So this teacher said his religious beliefs prevent him from using first names and pronouns that conflict with a student's sex assigned at birth. And the school initially allowed him to do that through some workarounds. It said, all right, well... You can just refer to students using their last names. And then when it comes to handing out any gender-specific uniforms, another teacher can handle that. But after he took that approach, some students started complaining and the school backtracked. They told him, you know, this is supposed to be an inclusive space. We really need you to use students' preferred pronouns and names, or we're going to have to ask you to resign. And he did that and sued. A lower court sided with the school and threw out his case. And in April, a Seventh Circuit panel did the same. However, later that month, the appellate court pressed pause on his request for rehearing until after the Supreme Court weighed in on that postal worker case. Okay, so I remember this postal worker case well because we covered it extensively for Employment Authority here at Law 360. And it's an interesting one. But if the listeners skipped that episode, backtrack us to the Supreme Court case. What was decided there? Yes. Pack your bags. We're leaving the Seventh Circuit. We're going to the Supreme Court now. We did talk about this on the pod back in June. That is episode 304 if you missed it or you want a refresher. But briefly, 
This was the case brought by an evangelical postal worker who said he couldn't work on Sundays. The Postal Service refused to accommodate that, and the Third Circuit sided with the Postal Service, ruling that it could deny his request because it imposed undue hardship on the Postal Service. And that undue hardship could be, uh, under precedent at that time, a minimal burden on the employer. But in June, the Supreme Court vacated that decision. It held that Title VII requires an employer seeking to establish undue hardship to deny a religious accommodation needs to show that granting that accommodation would result in, quote, substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So the big takeaway here is that the Supreme Court made it harder for employers to deny these accommodations. Okay, I can see where we're leading here about how we're now going to have to assess substantial increased costs about pronoun usage, which is a sentence I'd never thought I'd mash together. But here we are. How did the Seventh Circuit evaluate the case anew now that the Supreme Court has issued this new level that you have to reach to, to be able to say it's an undue hardship? Well, the frustrating thing here, Amber, is the Seventh Circuit really didn't elaborate. It just said, in light of that Supreme Court's clarification of the standard to be applied in these sorts of cases, its panel decision has been vacated and the case is remanded to the district court, which should, quote, apply the clarified standard to the religious accommodation claim in the first instance. So, annoying, you know, would have liked a little opinion to accompany this one. Sure, but this kind of makes sense. A lot of things that get kicked back in light of a yeah. new precedent then do go to the initial fact-finding court, so that's the lowest court. So, you know, exactly. this happens. But what can we glean just from the arguments here? Yeah, I think it's helpful to get into those arguments because there are some, some things to be gleaned, as you said. So the teacher describes himself as a man of deep Christian faith. He argued that the school failed to show the accommodation was an undue burden in that the students' complaints were merely third-party grumblings. And in the Supreme Court ruling, he, he pointed back to that and he said that it found, quote, heckler's vetoes that stem from bias toward a particular religion or hostility toward accommodating faith at work should be disregarded. But then on the school side of thing, Brownsburg said that public schools play a protective role and the teacher's last name only accommodation was antithetical to its mission of creating a safe and inclusive environment. The school said that even under the new standard, it did more than enough to show that the teacher's requested accommodation did present undue hardship on the school, given the students' complaints. But of course, the Seventh Circuit disagreed with the school, and now this has been kicked back down to the trial court, the Indiana federal court that was initially overseeing this. I'll just add that, you know, this is just the beginning of, I'm sure, more litigation and decisions that are going to be overturned in light of that Supreme Court decision. So we have a lot to look for. Yeah, definitely one to watch. And as you said, Haley, an unexpected mashup of pronouns into this, which I was not expecting. So we'll keep an eye out there. I want to turn now to something that we've been tracking for a while. So we're going from one we'll start tracking to one we have been tracking. And I want to give kind of a bit of a fresh update. I want to talk about some interesting news out of California. The state bar there this month suspended around 1,700 attorneys for failing to comply with new rules about client trust accounts. 
1700. That is a lot of attorneys to be suspended. Even in, you know, a massive state like California, we have a lot of attorneys. I can only imagine. I'm not going to throw out a, a guesstimation here. But well, right now you have 1,700 less. Exactly. Um, but let's get into that. Yeah. What prompted these rules that led to the suspensions? Here's the part I was referring to as a bit of an update for us about something we tracked for a long time. And this is where I think it gets really interesting, at least for me, because I was transfixed by this entire scandal I'm about to bring up again. This ties into a story we've told in podcast form before. The rules around handling client trust accounts are called the Client Trust Account Protection Program. That's the new rules. They were put into place in response to the infamous plaintiff's attorney, Tom Girardi. If that name sounds familiar, you may know that Girardi defrauded clients for decades, in part by messing around with their trust accounts. It all comes back to Girardi. It sure does. Which comes back to Housewives, which comes back to Bravo. Oh, Haley, I didn't even put that part in the script. Thank (laughs) you so much for bringing it up. Hey, do you know the name Tom Girardi? You might know him because he was, for many years, married to Erica Jane, who appears on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Or you may remember him because he was one of the attorneys involved in the real-life case that led to the hit movie Aaron Brockovich. That case resulted in a $333 million settlement, and he spent much of the last several decades racking up praise for landing other record-breaking settlements and huge product liability jury verdicts. So by all accounts, he was this uber-successful plaintiff's attorney. He was a lion in the California bar for years and years. But while all of this was going on, Girardi's clients were flooding the California State Bar with complaints that they hadn't received their settlement funds. All told, the California Bar investigators turned a blind eye to more than 200 misconduct complaints over Girardi's 40-year career. So we're not talking about just a few here. It was quite the deluge that they did not fully vet out to figure out what was going on with Girardi. All of this came to light starting in 2019 when lenders went after Girardi over unpaid debts, and then a Chicago law firm, Edelson PC, accused him of embezzling client funds for a case that they had worked on jointly. If you want to hear about how all of that went down, and believe me, if you haven't heard this full story, it is fascinating. Girardi seemingly had years and years of just impunity to do whatever he wanted. Our own Brandon Lowry did a ton of reporting, extensive work on this, unearthing much of the scandal. And we recorded a special two-part season of our Law 360 Explorers podcast called The Fall of Tom Girardi, where we explain the whole thing. I'd really recommend people go check that out. It's truly a wild story. All you have to do is look for Law360 and Girardi. It will pop up in your your Google or search engine of your choice. A wild ride. A wild ride. And Brandon continues to to report on the fallout from this. Yeah, he is our our expert in Tom Girardi, actually. He is. It's an interesting beat to have found yourself in. And speaking of the fallout, uh, what happened after, remind us what happened after he got found out. Okay, now we're coming back around to the story for today. So first of all, Girardi himself was disbarred. His firm, Girardi Keese, has shuttered, and he faces criminal charges. But that left to open the question of why the California bar didn't stop his misconduct for all those years. And that's led to some real introspection and some changes to prevent a fiasco like this from happening again in the state. The bar rolled out new rules of professional conduct governing the handling of client trust funds. And those went live in late 2022. Attorneys in the state had until April 3rd of this year to comply with the new rules. 
Those 1,700 attorneys I talked about earlier, whose licenses are now inactive, cannot practice law until they come into compliance with these new rules. They require things like reporting whether they were responsible for any client trust accounts, if they were, completing a self-assessment, certifying that they complied with the requirements related to safekeeping of those client funds, and registering their accounts with the state bar, and also paying any associated fees with those accounts. So there's just some more record keeping and recording what they're up to and being more transparent about it. That's sort of what you need to know about the rules. The California State Bar did say that out of more than 202,000 attorneys. Okay, there we go. There you go, Haley. That's the number. More than 190,000 of them complied by the April deadline. So we did have a big chunk here that complied. So that's good news for the California Bar. I don't want to make it sound like all the lawyers out in California are doing something wrong. We definitely had a huge block that complied with these new regulations. So what does it mean that these 1,700 attorneys, though, have been suspended? Does this mean that they were also pulling a Girardi and uh, allowing their Real Housewives of Beverly Hills star wife to... To, to start a spend. pop career and spend a bunch of client money? Yeah. Uh, great <laughs> question. No, not necessarily. So I do want to be clear here. The program's new. This rule is new. So there are kinks to work out, and that may have resulted in, in some of what's gone on here. So some lower-level attorneys, for example, like associates, may work at places where they don't really interact with client trust accounts at all, and they were perhaps unsure how to comply with the rules. There's also, you know, the 1,700 attorney figure has not necessarily accounted for situations where an attorney may have died or they moved out of state and the bar is unaware of that change. So there may just be some administrative type issues going on there. The state bar officials also said the new program has revealed, and this is a little troubling, that banks reported 10,000 more client trust accounts than the California attorneys themselves reported. So the state bar Uh said they're still working to understand why there's such a large discrepancy there. The state bar is now working with banks to follow up on what it believes may be hundreds of these accounts that are actually held by either disbarred, resigned, or inactive attorneys and judges, or by people who were never licensed to practice in California in the first place. Some of that may be legal. Some of that may be problematic. But there's just a ton of paperwork there to sort out what's what. And we're in the sorting out phase at this yeah. point. Yeah. Imagine, um, not to make light of, of anything here, but imagine you're an attorney, you've died, you're a ghost, and then you find out that the California bar has, you, you've been disbarred by the bar association <laughs> simply because you, uh, you as a ghost did not usually, comply. Usually you want to be, you want to be honored after your death. You don't want to be disbarred after your death. Exactly. Yeah, no. So we're making light a little bit here, but you can see how a lot of what's going on here might not be 1,700 attorneys who've all stolen from clients. It may in large part be people that are confused about how to comply with the rules and have are well-meaning but haven't done anything wrong. Or just like I said, some of these administrative things that they need to sort out. The number of accounts out there not reported by California licensed attorneys is going to take some time to sort through. There's a lot to do here to prevent the kind of grift we saw with Tom Girardi, which is an extreme case. While some of these discrepancies may be technical and the result, like I said, of well-meaning attorneys who are trying to do the right thing but didn't fully understand how to comply, there is certainly the specter of attorneys out there who may be skimming from their clients. And if Tom Girardi could get away with it for 40 plus years... There's going to be at least some percentage here 
that are actually doing bad things. So I won't be surprised if we don't start to see some fallout here as this is followed up more and more and hear more stories of attorneys who, in fact, were ripping off their clients. So that is something to stay tuned for as the fallout from Girardi spreads to the broader legal community. The latest criminal indictment against Donald Trump paints a detailed picture of the former president's extensive efforts to subvert and overturn the results of the 2020 election, culminating in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol by hordes of his supporters as lawmakers were preparing to certify his defeat. The document put forward by special counsel Jack Smith said that Trump knowingly spread false claims about the election and pressured state and federal officials to change the results. Smith's office is alleging an unprecedented political power grab, accusing Trump of violating laws that are not often at the forefront of the legal world, but are sure to be closely scrutinized in the coming months. Here to break down the indictment and a few of its more intricate elements is Columbia Law Professor Richard Brafalt, whose work focuses on government ethics and the political process. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. Lots to talk about, as you can imagine. And... This indictment, unlike the other Trump indictments before it, really gets squarely at Trump's central political grievance, which is his belief that he was cheated out of the 2020 election. What I want to talk about with you is sort of how did Jack Smith's office take that kind of motivating political animus and frame it as a criminal act? And I would just kind of welcome your general reaction to the indictment and uh, what it says. Sure. The indictment has four counts, but I think there's basically two big ideas in it. One is that Trump orchestrated a conspiracy to basically subvert the votes of the American people. So one of the one of the, the charges is basically a violation of the voting rights of American people by, in effect, seeking to nullify the election. The majority of the American people, casting a majority of the states that chose electoral votes, chose Biden. Uh, the, the argument of the indictment is that Trump organized a conspiracy that would nullify those votes. And the functional equivalent of ballot box stuffing, mm. ballot, ballot box throwing away. So one of the provisions that's used is a 19th century law that was really adopted to deal with violations of rights, including the right to vote. That's one key part of it. The other, again, conspiracy is, is to obstruct and hinder and prevent the operations of the federal government, and particularly Congress, in conducting a governmental act, which was certifying the electoral votes on January 6th. The two are related in some ways. They're, they're two different ways of approaching the same thing, which is an attempt to undo the election, steal the election. One focuses on the rights of voters. The other focuses on the disruption of a government function, the disruption of Congress. Yeah, and that brings us to what I wanted to talk to you about next. Um, I think what you were just alluding to there is that two of the four counts basically surround Trump's alleged efforts to, in the words of the statute, quote, obstruct an official proceeding. And this, as you say, refers to the January 6th congressional session, which is meant to certify the Electoral College. This happens every election year, mostly without incident. That was not the case this most recent time. And I want to talk to you about that law specifically, because that law about obstructing official proceedings, that has come up 
in the prosecutions against the January 6th rioters as well. And there has been some questioning about whether that statute is an appropriate fit for what happened on that day. I would like to hear more from you about how that law works and whether you think there's a distinction between the way it's being used against the January 6th rioting defendants versus how it's being used against Trump here. Sure. Yes, a number of charges have been brought against the January 6th rioters. They've been convicted of many things, but the one that's been somewhat controversial, as you mentioned, is this one. And I think the controversy that's gone on in the courts has turned on one word. The statute talks about disrupting of governmental or hindering or obstructing criminal proceeding corruptly. And so much turns on what do we mean by corrupt? Um, and one way to read it is like any kind of wrongdoing or any kind of violation of the norms that ought to apply to something is corrupt. The other, and this is the argument that's been raised by some of the January 6th defenders, is that corrupt has something to do with getting self-interest, particularly financial self-interest. And that the rioters, whatever wrong they were doing, they were not getting anything out of it. Uh, and so that's been the argument. Um, and the one judge on the D.C. Circuit has embraced that argument. Plaintiffs have, and there may be still something to it. For the most part, the application of that statute has been sustained. In this case, the Trump case, actually, is probably a better case for applying that statute because he was getting something out of it. Yeah, he <laughs> gets to stay being president. If it's right it... office. So I actually think, although the application of this provision is being challenged in a number of the appeals, in a number of the, the uh, January 6th rioter cases, the Trump case is actually a better case for it. Uh, whatever, whatever the issue is for the, the street fighters, <laughs> um, it's not going to be an issue. It shouldn't be an issue for him. But I'm, and I don't think his lawyer has been talking about that so much in the media. But that is something uh, that the, the law does require that the obstruction be done corruptly. In your first answer about when you're running down the indictment for us, you mentioned a conspiracy against rights, and you referenced a 19th century law. Before you came on, we were talking about, and this has come up in, in coverage elsewhere, that this count rests on a law that was initially enacted to counteract the Ku Klux Klan. And um, that is quite an interesting context in which to view what happened that day. I'd like to dig a little deeper on what that law is, what it was drafted to protect against, and again, how Smith is using it against Trump. And if you have a, an opinion on its relative strength or weakness in this case. I'm all ears on that as well. Sure. Indeed, the law is uh, familiarly known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. It was enacted around, I think, 1871-1872. And in fact, it was a response to the efforts of the, the emerging Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction at a time when formerly enslaved people, Black people, free Black people were, being, were finally given the right to vote in Southern states, and they were met with an onslaught of violence fraud, intimidation, outright murder in some situations, uh, terrorism, really kind of domestic terrorism. So Congress basically passed this law as one of the relatively early federal criminal laws, basically making it a federal crime to do that. And although it speaks generally about rights, it was actually inspired in significant part by the attack on the right to vote. So um, it has been used more recently, uh, and in used situations like, I think, situations like ballot box stuff or um, corruption in the cont of the voting process. It's not been limited uh, to violence, but it does talk about you know, improper interferences with the vote. And that's the kind of uh, the theory here, 
is that, you know, Trump and his co-conspirators were subverting the election. The election happened. It wasn't, uh, in some uses of the statute, would be to prevent people from voting, you know, by fraud or by, by violence. Here, the election happened. But now in this post-election period, from November to January, they were looking at all manner of means to basically get votes thrown out um, and we get the results changed. So, uh, again, it's not, I don't think, I'm not sure this situation has been, has come up before in the history of the statute, but it's not that far off from what the statute was meant to do. Yeah, um, and I'm glad, the, I think the historical context is quite crucial here, because I would welcome any attempt you you can make here to 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 put it in context for us, because it's not like, I wouldn't say there's no precedent on the use of these laws, but I think the, the circumstances here are quite unusual when you consider the scale of the crime alleged. I mean, this is about as sort of a, a most ambitious, you know, act of, you know, obstruction that you could hope to, to pursue. And I just, I would welcome, you know, how you think, you know, so often, I mean, I'm sure each side will refer on precedents and it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of clean fits for either of them to make when you consider that we're talking about a sitting president at the time trying to do this. Can you, I mean, I'm not asking you to forecast litigation here for us, but how do you expect that to play out given the unique factual pattern, I guess? I mean, obviously this is unprecedented, so it's hard to say. I suspect that Trump's defense will be that he had real concerns, legitimate concerns about the election, and that he was particularly focused on the um, the electoral college, the fake electors, the the, the effort uh, in six or seven states to come up with an alternative slate of electors to send them to Congress to create basically confusion and conflict in Congress, so as to stall the certification of the Biden's result. You know, I think his argument is going to have to be, I had real concerns, I had legitimate concerns, I thought there was fraud, I thought that people were voting, and so therefore I wanted to get, I, I think I won those states, or at the very least, uh, since we're going to keep fighting this in court or elsewhere, I want to have this other set of electors ready in case I do win some of these conflicts. And to me, I thought the most interesting part of the indictment, the most detailed part, which I don't think I'd actually seen that much about in the media before, is how the indictment really goes on how they developed the fake electric strategy and how yeah. maybe the very first time they came up with, there was some thought that, well, maybe they might win some cases. So it would be useful to have these electors. But then how it very quickly morphed from, oh, we think we might win a case to, we want to have these to some confusion. And how at least in one state, I think, they brought a case challenging the results like six minutes before the deadline. Yes, they, were, they had already put the electors together. They put them together in ways that violated the Electoral Count Act. But that this was it, the defense. I think was going to be the Swiss. We were pursuing all legitimate legal strategies uh, to preserve our rights because we think the election that we think there was fraud. We think there was irregularities. And I think what the indictment keeps hammering away at is not only was there no fraud, not only was there no irregularities, but Trump knew or should have known that because he was being told that all the time mm-hmm. by both the Justice Department and by state officials. And that they went ahead and developed a you know, fake electors scheme knowing that. And I do think that's going to be where the, much of the fight is going to be. Was this a legitimate effort to keep all your legal options open? Or did they know that they had no case and were doing it just to 
blow smoke just to try and disrupt, just to try and confuse and force a different result. So as we sit here today, it's Thursday afternoon, Trump is set to be arraigned on these charges and in, a, in, in D.C. court. He's expected to plead not guilty, as he's done in the other indictments. Here we've been talking about kind of litigation strategies, arguments they'll make. I'm curious to know what you'll be watching for in the next couple of months as the case moves forward, almost just on procedural stuff. The indictment lists but does not bring charges against these unnamed co-conspirators. I'm kind of curious about that. I'm curious as to whether you think there will be potential any of those conspirators or others will flip and cooperate with the government. There's also the question about the timing of a trial date, given that he is the front runner for the Republican nomination. All that and more. Uh, anything that that will be kind of at the very prominent on your radar as we move forward here in the, in the coming months. You really flag the two things that I would pay the most attention to. When is the judge going to set a trial date and what will that date be? How far down the road will it be? Um, comparing this to, say, the Mar-a-Lago case, it covers more ground, but I understand in the Mar-a-Lago case, there's a lot of questions about uh, the confidentiality of the documents. So I think there may be a lot of kind of uh, foreplay, some pre-litigation. Yeah. Documents will be available, what have to be redacted. And that may, so I think in that case, the judge set the trial about 10 months down the road from when she announced she was setting the trial. So we're a couple of months later than that. In that case, I think everyone agrees there's going to be a lot of fencing about, around, the, around what's going to be admissible and under what conditions. I don't know that that's a big issue here. Uh, there will be a lot of testimony. There'll be a lot of ground to cover. The, the indictment refers to, in effect, actions in seven different states, plus in the Justice Department. So there may be a lot of action, but I don't know that there'll be as much preliminary skirmishing. This judge is known to be a um, pretty well-organized, very efficient, very experienced judge. So it's now the beginning of August. You know, what do we think? I, I, I'm making this up. I really don't know when it would be. You know, we're thinking, I'm guessing if you look at some of the other cases, the, the New York City hush money case the, uh, the, and, and the Mar-a-Lago case, would they tend to be nine, 10 months or so ahead? Mm -hmm. That case, we may be looking at the beginning of late next spring, the beginning of next summer. I think near the end of the primary season, maybe shortly before the convention, if that happens. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting. The other, and as you mentioned also, what about the co-conspirators? Will any of them be indicted? What's any of them going to flip or at least partially? Uh, they all seem like dead-enders, people who are very loyal to him. Mm -hmm. It's not clear, but as we just saw in the Mar-a-Lago case very recently, somebody new was added. So uh, I, I could see why they might not want to indict the other six, because it makes for a more complicated trial. And I could, I mean, it seems to me maybe we're surprised that they're just mentioned but not indicted. The trial yeah, there's, like a, more, there's like a dispersal of blame almost, you could see. The trial gets more unwieldy the more defendants there are. And there may be, I mean, I think the Justice Department, Mr. Smith has so far has demonstrated himself to be an extremely smart, shrewd lawyer. And there's, there's there are reasons for this. And I'm not a criminal practice lawyer, but I do think maybe one thing is that just having one defendant simplifies things. That the case will go faster. That doesn't mean they won't bring the other ones in. Um, there, are, there may be procedural advantages for having them indicted as well. But that's, a, that's going to be something to watch too. All right. Well, certainly no shortage of things to watch on this case. And I uh, am so grateful 
that you were able to join us. This was uh, Columbia Law Professor Richard Brafault. Thank you so much for uh, joining Pro Se. I uh, greatly enjoyed the discussion. Great. Thanks, Alex. It was, it was a pleasure to be here. This is a fascinating case. I'm, I'm sure we're all going to be watching it very closely in the months ahead. That'll wrap up today's show, an action-packed one. Thanks for holding it down with me, Haley. Thank you, Amber. I also want to thank our producers, Keller McKenna and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Richard Brafault, our contributing reporters, Emmy Friedman and Hannah Albarazzi. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, we would love to hear from you. Leave us a five-star and written review. That definitely helps other people find our program. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, Go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.